Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. It is wonderful to see all of you here today at Morningstar Baptist Church. My name is Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive at the City Club. And, um, and just give yourselves a round of applause. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming, to coming out to Morningstar. Um, there's a, a few folks, before we get, official, get started with the official program, um, there's a, a few things that we want to take care of and let you know about. Right now, the Guardians are down four to one. It's the middle of the fifth. I'm sorry, um, but I feel like you should know. It's just you can do, like file that away now, set it aside. Um, and whatever happens tonight, whatever happens tonight, the Guardians have outperformed everybody's expectations. Give the Guardians a round of applause. Come on. Um, so some of you may not be familiar with the City Club of Cleveland, um, and we're delighted to, uh, to introduce ourselves to you. We do about 100 programs a year. Our mission is to convene conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. And, um, and that's a, a mission that we've been working on and fulfilling for 110 years, since 1912. Um, we're so delighted to be able to present this with our partners at St. Luke's Foundation and um, bringing authors to the city and artists to the city to speak to audiences is something that we absolutely love doing. And we're really grateful, Tim and Peter, to you and your colleagues and the board members of St. Luke's Foundation for your ongoing partnership and support. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking the St. Luke's Foundation. Um, I wanted to thank also our community partners for today's forum, um, including Passages, the Creative Healing Foundation, Village of Healing, and Third Space Action Lab. If you did not yet buy a copy of the book, Third Space Action Lab is still selling copies. Um, and I think they're about $27, and we are so appreciative. They're the, the newest bookseller in town, as far as I know, and it's exciting to have, in, a, in an era when allegedly like reading is dead, and we, do, we all do much more reading on our phone than, than in, with, in books on pages and so forth, um, it is wonderful to have another bookseller in town. Um, a few uh, quick housekeeping items I wanted to mention. Once we get into the forum, uh, during the second half, we will um, we'll be doing the Q&A. And the Q&A is devoted to really your curiosity, your questions. We'll have a microphone right over here. It'll probably be a little bit down when we, when we we'll, we'll do that. We'll move it down a little bit in the Q&A. And if you have a question, you can just line up back here along, the, along here. And our staff, uh, one of my colleagues will be there by the microphone, let you know when it's your turn. Um, in order to get to as many questions as possible, we'd ask that you um, actually, like once you ask your question, just quietly return to your seat so that we can get the next question lined up. Um, that would be super helpful, and we appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate it greatly. Also, um, you have a phone with you, I'm pretty sure. Keep it handy so you can take pictures, and uh, if you want to shoot a little video and share it on TikTok or whatever, that's, that's welcome. Um, but um, please make sure it's on silent mode so that it doesn't, it doesn't go off. Last, uh, the last forum we had, somebody's ringtone was uh, Bob O'Reilly by The Who, you know, like Teenage Wasteland. It just like came on like right in the middle of the forum. Tim Ryan was talking. It was hilarious. Um, but let's, let's try to avoid that today. I do this at every forum, and inevitably somebody's like, no, nah, my phone's off. And they don't check, and then it goes off. And they're like, I thought I left it in the car. Um, so thank you in advance for taking care of that. But please do like, share what happens here with, uh, with your social networks if you're, on, if you're on social media. We really appreciate that. And that helps these conversations resonate far beyond these four walls. Um, I also wanted to uh, give a shout out to all of my colleagues at the City Club for helping to make this happen, but one colleague in particular, our executive chef, Adam Crawford, who provided the buffalo chicken dip and all the other food. Thank you very much, Chef Adam. I don't know if he's here or if he can hear you, but I hope that he recognizes that 
Um, we, you know, nothing, nothing makes these sorts of things better than good food. And, uh, and so anyway, so thank you, thank you to him. And um, now it is, oh, I did wanna mention one other thing. There's a, there's a glaring typo in the program. We accidentally um, gave Chanel Smith-Wiggum uh, the, the wrong title. While she's on the board of Cleveland Votes, she's not a co-founder of Cleveland Votes. Um, and uh, she actually uh, has a very important community-facing role uh, at KeyBank. So Chanel, our apologies and our, and our gratitude to you for your flexibility and understanding. Um, all right, now it is my great pleasure to introduce um, our good friend, Peter Witt, Senior Program Officer at the St. Luke's Foundation uh, for a few remarks on behalf of that foundation. Thank you very much, Peter, come on up. we're good I, bear with me as I position this so first of all I, I thank you Dan for the introduction um, I do have a few thank yous more thank yous and then a few comments but on behalf of our board at the st. Luke's foundation and with the representative of our and to our board president Terry Allen Tim our president and to our staff we really want to thank you for being here this evening it means a lot to see you all in the audience it means a lot to appreciate the people from this community being a part of this experience with us today. For us at the St. Luke's Foundation, this is about our 25th anniversary. So I want to make sure we echo that. I also want to make sure I thank Pastor Hall for hosting us in partnership with the City Club. Definitely give him some love. And I especially really want to thank some key people. I'm going to call their names. One of them is Ashley Evans, Ms. Tony Johnson. There you go. <laughs> and Adriana Rodriguez. These are members of our Resident Advancement Committee. Let's go. Let's go. Show some love. And why it's important to echo who they are is because they're residents of this community and they helped us plan both events. And so I want to make sure we honor keeping the voice of the community in the forefront of the work we do. The other individuals that I want to recognize today are both Devante Dickey and Sharon Edmonds. They're part of the St. Luke's family, the team. They're behind the scene providing the details of this. So we really appreciate and value your, your, um, your input and your, and your work and the efforts that you're doing. Last but not least, to my right, Chanel Smith-Wiggum. I know you're going to come up here and do your thing. Our esteemed guest, Talib, sitting there. We, we're looking forward to it. So I'm going to continue my part so we can get to you all. We thank you, and so I want to make sure that we acknowledge that. So to the remarks that I want to provide, um, I'll start off with this. I was having a conversation yesterday with a person, Randy McShepard, and in that conversation, he happened to mention a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. And some of you may have heard this quote. I'm not sure, but I'll read it. So in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King had a reflection. He said, philanthropy is commendable but it must not cause the philanthropists to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice which make philanthropy necessary. What's powerful about that is that as we think about the work of the St. Luke's Foundation and what we've been doing, I can recall us being here June 30th, making a phenomenal contribution to this community through nonprofit organizations and small businesses. I can also remember in that moment, we were ensured that we would have community voices a part of that selection process. Our board chair and Tim echoed the importance of a strategic plan 
that was developed in 2018 that addressed social determinants of health, health equity, and racial inequities. I say that to say that our commitment stands true as we think about the 25th year of existence of the St. Luke's Foundation. And so as I continue these comments, the word courage came to my mind. It takes courage to stand up. Now, let me be honest. I had to Google the word. That's because there's so many different definitions of courage, and two stood out for me. The first one is social courage. To be yourself unapologetically. It is my hope that in this 25th year, you see that the St. Luke's Foundation is standing up unapologetically addressing inequities. The second word, spiritual courage. Living with purpose and meaning through a heart-centered approach towards all life and oneself. When I look at who we are as a foundation, the team, our board members, and what they represent, it is truly heartfelt. And more importantly, it is not just about the foundation. It is really, it's truly about the people in the community that we're serving. So again, I echo these words so that we would understand that this 25th year of St. Luke's Foundation anniversary is significant, not only in who we are, but who we are to become. And I thank you for your presence. And when I say I thank you for your presence, I should say we thank you for your presence. And when I'm talking about the we and the thank you, it goes to the community that has helped uplift the work that we're doing. And we still have so much more work to do. And in my closing statement, and quote, because of where we're going this evening with the artists, a person that I think is pretty close to Pella made this statement. Don't look down. It's an impossible view. Fly like an eagle, whatever you do. I feel like this is the opportunity for us all to fly like an eagle. And that was most deaf, y'all seen back. And then with that, I'm going to bring up our council president, Blaine Griffin, and thank you. Wow, how do I follow Reverend Dr. <laughs> Peter Witt? And he's quoting most deaf. I truly want to just tell everyone what an honor and a privilege it is to be here before you today. I have the dubious honor not only to uh, give welcoming remarks as council president of the city of Cleveland, uh, but also as the proud Ward 6 councilman of this area. Ward 6, where you at? I see a few of us in here. Ward 6 is a great community. It's a Dickensian model of a community. We have some great areas that are doing well and are thriving and growing, but then we also have areas that are dealing with crushing poverty, inadequate housing, health inequalities, and all of the other things that basically lend to uh, struggling neighborhoods. But what I love about Ward 6 is that we really stick together. 25 years ago, somewhere around there, we all had to witness our anchor institution, St. Luke's Hospitals, that closed down um, due to financial pressures. And it really was devastating to the neighborhood. We lost approximately 45 to 50% of our neighborhood at that time. But now to sit here and look at my friend, 
Tim Tramble, my very good friend, that is really making the investments and the strategic investments. And to bring this type of intellectual capacity to our community, it just makes me proud to look at our resurgence that War 6 is coming back due to the work that St. Luke's and others are doing. So congratulations on your 25th anniversary. I really want to get out the way and do my thing. I apologize in advance. I really want to get out the way and let um, my good friend Chanel um, Smith Wiggum to do her thing and uh, interview one of the people who I love listening to coming up. Yes, I'm in the hip hop generation. I just look old, uh, but <laughs> I really do like hip hop and most deaf and to live quality are the truth. They're real MCs. Uh, it's not some of the industry stuff that we're hearing now. These are guys that really were the forerunners of social justice and hip-hop. So it just does my heart well to be able to present a small token of our appreciation if uh, Mr. Talib Kweli would join us on stage. Um, just want to give a token of my appreciation. And I'll just read two stanzas. It says, whereas the members of Cleveland City Council take extreme pride and pleasure in extending a warm and sincere welcome to gift lyricist, hip-hop musician, community activist, and author Talib Kweli as he discussed, discusses how hip-hop and lyrics can be used as a tool for emotional well-being for the health of our community. And it also says, be it resolved that the members of Cleveland City Council and the citizens of this great city are proud to welcome Talib Kweli as he speaks about how music has helped him emotionally and for his significant accomplishments, contributions, and achievements in his phenomenal music career as one of the world's most gifted hip-hop artists. This council further extends best wishes to Talib Kweli for continued success as he continues to captivate his audience with motivating speeches and for his musical talent and abilities. Ladies and gentlemen, this proclamation will go in the histories and the annals of City Hall, and we will always appreciate and, and um, definitely acknowledge Talib Kweli. Thank you. We're not, we're not starting just yet. Hold on. Obviously, one, one more, one more speaker. Um, but you, you, yeah, you can just stay right there. It's, that was funny. Blaine said he was only going to read a couple verses. Um, <laughs> um, Council President, thank you so much for your leadership, for all that you do for the community, for your friendship and your partnership with the City Club. Uh, uh, Friends of the City Club, it brings me great pleasure to, um, to introduce now Pastor Clarence Hall, in whose, in whose house we are right now, to provide our official introduction. Pastor, where, wait. There he is. Oh, God, he's sitting over to the side. Do you sneak up on people all the time? All the time. You never know when he might be watching. Pastor Hall, friends. Good evening. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Pastor Clarence Hall, and this evening we're gathered here at the Morning Star Baptist Church on Cleveland's east side. And truly, it is my honor to be able to serve as the senior pastor of this great church. Today is Tuesday, October 18th, and it is my pleasure to introduce this evening's forum in partnership with the St. Luke's Foundation as we celebrate their 25th anniversary. 
According to research, music is a critical tool for navigating emotions and reducing stress. It can also serve as unifying and rallying force that bridges differences in identities, political ideologies, and cultural backgrounds. Recently, a survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation found that the pandemic's mental health impact has been very pronounced among communities of color. So how can we activate lyrics and hip hop as an emotional well-being tool for the benefit of our neighborhoods? And how can music be used to promote healing and community strength? Well, here to discuss this with us tonight is Talib Kweli, a Brooklyn-based MC widely known for his work with Moss Def and as one half of Black Star. He is regarded as one of the most lyrically gifted, socially aware, and politically insightful rappers to emerge in the last 20 years. He is also the author of a new memoir called Vibrate Higher, a rap story, which is a call to action and firsthand account of the power of revolutionary black voices. Also joining us today is Chanel Smith-Wiggum, Senior Vice President and Director of Community Relations and Corporate Initiatives at KeyBank. Chanel lives in Glenville's Cleveland neighborhood and has a background in community organizing and an MBA from Case Western Reserve University. Chanel has shared the stage with the likes of former EPA chiefs, governors, and get this, even Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> as a champion of uplifting community voices. Tonight, she will moderate the conversation with Mr. Kwee Lee. If you have questions for our guests, you can text them to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet those same questions to at the City Club and the City Club staff will try to work them into the second half of the program. Community members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Talib Kweli. I was telling him he knows how the mics work better than me. One, two, one, two. Hey, the mics are on. How y'all feeling? I can just get off the stage now. I mean, you can just do <laughs> no, your thing. No, no, no. Okay, okay. I need okay. you here. We already started the conversation a little bit in the background, so I just want to thanks, uh, send a thanks to Pastor Hall for letting us be here um, in your pulpit. I appreciate that. So we're just going to jump into the questions, and this is going to be, you know, SSW. They call me SSW in the streets. What's that mean? Chanel Smith-Wiggum. Oh, okay. I get it now. <laughs> All right. We're going to do this. All right. Okay. So, uh Start off with the book, um, you were raised in a household of academics and activists, even your grandparents, um, in a pan-African household. In Vibrate Higher, you describe how your parents filled their energies uh, with activism during a time when America was more darker and more aggressive, much like where we are right now. But for them, it was the black cultural naturalist um, arts movement that drew them home. And you, 
Sonia Sanchez just talked about this on one of your podcasts, how people were called home to Harlem, people were called home uh, to those boroughs in, in New York City. In what ways have you used your music to call people home and for communities to heal? Uh, well, I was blessed to come into my career uh, via Inkiru Books, which is a bookstore. Is it, can y'all hear me? All right. Inkiru Books is a bookstore I worked at when I was a teenager. Uh, when I first got my first record deal, Yasin Bey, Most Def, and I purchased this bookstore because it was going under. And so a lot of uh, the first few years of my career were spent with me trying to maintain this bookstore. So while a lot of rappers are buying chains and cars, and Yasin and I were trying to run a black business and trying to keep this bookstore afloat. And my relationship with the bookstore uh, kept me in a literary space, and so you hear a lot of literary references in my music. And this bookstore was unique. It was started by, well, before the bookstore, as you just mentioned, my parents were academics, and they took time to take me to museums and libraries and places like this as I was a child. Um, they were active in, my mother was a member of an organization called NOW, National Organization of, uh, of Women. Uh, they were, uh, she was doing voter registration stuff, but the the call of the day, the, the ground zero, I think, for them was South Africa at the time. So they were very active in anti-apartheid uh, work. And so that laid the foundation. So when hip-hop became... When hip hop, when the popular hip hop was was conscious music, Big Big Daddy Kane, Karis One, Rakim, uh, with conscious lyricists of Jungle Brothers, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, I, I was a very young man, very impressionable, and so the perfect storm of having cultural nationalist parents with hip hop moving, hip hop was following really the direction of Malcolm X and the Black Arts Movement, and then all of that combining with me working at the bookstore. Um, at the bookstore, Leothi Miller Owens started in Kiru Books, and she passed away very early at 40 years old, and her mother, Adelaide Miller, uh, came out of retirement, she was a school teacher, came out of retirement to run the bookstore. She hired a lady named CJ, and CJ was new, CJ knew Terry McMillan, and she could get in touch with Alice Walker, and so people like this, Terry, Terry McMillan lived down the street from the bookstore. Alice Walker came and did a book signing. Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Johnny Cochran, uh, uh, Marimba Ani, Dr. Ben, John Henry Clark, the, all, the, all the thought leaders and authors, Tony K. Bambera, Baby Moore Campbell. It didn't matter whether they were writing romance novels or writing his, history books. If you were a black author, you came through in Kiru Books. I, I met Walter Mosley on his first book. You know, and, and, and so having that proximity to black authors made me feel like the, the idea that we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors is abstract, but it became really tangible to me because I was able to have relationships with these people. So you were able to have relationships with these people, and of course, it, we hear it in your music. It's definitely inspired you. But how did it inspire the community, even those who didn't have parents who were in the movement? Well, I can only speak for myself because I, I am a very, very blessed and privileged to have and know and have great relationships with both my parents and a lot of people don't experience that. Um, you know, if you look at the research, uh, research from the CDC says that black fathers are in the household uh, and in their child's lives, in their children's lives more than any demographic. And the reason why the myth 
of father, fatherlessness in the black household is so pervasive is one, because it's a stereotype that aids our oppressor, but two, because people don't get married the same way, same, in the same race that they used to. So they're looking at single uh, mothers or single households as, well, the father's not there, even if the fathers are there. So I mean, I say that, I, I say that to say that even though that's true, and a lot of, I think a lot of black people can relate to this, even though this, the data shows that we are in the household as black fathers, I know on my block, my anecdotal experience, on my block, I was the only person who had a father in the household on a particular block that I lived in. Um, and so I had friends who would tell me that because they didn't have a father in the household that hip hop raised them and that their value system and their perspective on fatherhood is, they got from hip hop and whether it's a song like be a father to your child from Edo G and the Bulldogs to something as pop as Will Smith's just the two of us. I, f I think a lot of people in my generation who felt the pain of that stereotype um, actively turned it around. So I think hip hop can be very positive in terms of its value system. We're talking about the value, the actual values of hip hop, not what they sell to us as the values of hip hop, but the actual values of hip hop. Uh, can be can be illuminating. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you also talk, talk about the difference between hip hop and rap. I mean, you could talk about that and illuminate that on that a little bit. But one of the things that I also heard you recently talk about is hip hop purists, hip hop academics. And when I was telling people I was going to do this panel, they were like, "Well, ask him about today's hip hop versus you know conscious rap." My question to you is: by not um, not necessarily acknowledging, but are there lessons that our community can learn from people like Little Baby, Chance the Rapper, even though it may not be what you brought to the forefront, but what are those lessons that people can learn from the rappers today that our young folks are listening to? So hip hop is largely regional, and um, because of how regional it is, the music that Little Baby is making, it doesn't, um, I'm not drawn to it as easily as I'm drawn to the music that someone like a Chance the Rapper is making. But content-wise, Little Baby is doing exactly what we were doing, from from what I could see. Um, and I mean, Chance the Rapper, I mean, forget about it. This guy is starting a Black Star Festival in Ghana. Like, it doesn't get more inspirational than that, you know? Um, I think, I'm, that's a good question. I think it's very seductive and sexy to focus on we don't what we don't like. I think us as a society, when we driving down the highway, we slow down and look at the traffic accident. It's just in our nature. There's something in our in our human nature we we like to we we like to talk about what bothers us. And there's there's endorphins in that because it makes us feel like better people. If you can be like, I don't listen to that gangster music and there's nothing out here for me and all the radio all the music on the radio is garbage. That that makes you feel like you're a better person. But I would challenge people who feel that way to spend that same energy bigging up and supporting what they do like instead of constantly explaining what they don't like. Because that's really the most efficient way to, to deal with it. Um, there's so many examples, whether it's a mainstream example like J. Cole or Kendrick Lamar, who Kendrick Lamar just put out a whole album where every song he talk about therapy. And he, arguably he's the most popular rapper to a more underground, like like you know a Psy Rock or, or a Rhapsody or somebody like that. There's so many examples. We spend so much time talking about what we don't like. And we control the radio, the radio waves. Like we, we control it with our ears, with our, with our dollars. We, we, we determine what is being sold to us. 
and and too often we give that control over to to corporate interests and, and corporate interests is not I don't think it's as, as insidious as it, it's not a conspiracy theory because they're telling us exactly what they're doing. There's no actual conspiracy. They're telling us sex and violence sells, and we're gonna focus on selling you sex and violence because guess what? That's what you're telling us you want with your dollars, and so. You know, I, I, I bristle sometimes at the idea that, oh, there's no good music. No, 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 we have to be conscious consumers. Too often we put the onus on the artist to be conscious. And especially rappers, when anything happens in the community, why ain't the rappers saying nothing? Well, how about the program directors? How about the DJs? How about the consumers? Why is it only the rappers? Because the rappers are the most fun. We look like we're having the most fun. We're the most, except, you know, we, we, we're the loudest. You know, we have the chains on, and you know, it's like we're the loudest in the room. So people are like, well, why don't the rappers say something? And and um, yeah, I just I think that we have to put our energy into supporting what we do like and showing the example. I love uh, Megan a Stallion. I love Migos. I love debaucherous music. I love empty vacuous music. It's fun. It's okay. We in the church, but yeah, it's you know, fun. It's all right. You know, we keeping it real, right? Like making the stallions. You talk about you talk about the truth. We're supposed to be talking the truth, the truth right? It's set us free. Um, you know, shame the devil all the time. Um, I, I really do enjoy that music, but I was I was raised to be able to parse the difference. I think most people are uh, raised to understand the, the difference between entertainment and what you should be. But you know, as some major rappers have pointed out, you know, sh you know, taking in that energy is is very real. So you, that when you, you're playing around with that, you gotta be careful. Instead of saying there's nothing on the radio, there's no balance, I just attempt to create that balance. And I, 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 as far as what I consume, I have to be a conscious consumer and I have to be responsible for curating my own playlist. At this point when you can literally Shazam a song out the air and it'll be in your phone, you don't even gotta pay for it. If you're already paying for streaming, there's no excuse. If you don't like the music you hear on the radio, go listen to psychedelic rock and roll from the 70s for, for five months. You know, just, you know, expand your understanding. There's so much music out there. I'm a musician for a living, and I, there's no way I can listen to all music. There's, there's actually too much dope music. There's too much good music. I don't have time in a lifetime to consume all of it. So when it's so easy, we get music for free and people still complain about how there's nothing to listen to, that just feels like laziness to me. Well, one of the things you just talked about, um, you said one word, therapy, in this conversation is about healing, but it's also about healing in music. In what ways do you pursue self-care outside of making music, enjoying music? What are some other avenues that you can share with us today where you indulge in that? Uh, so I wanna preface this answer by saying, um, I'm an expert in a few things, but self-care, I'm not an expert in. Yeah, because you did like 200 shows here <laughs> before the pandemic. I'm an expert at doing shows. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm good at that. Um, and I probably have a lot to learn. There's probably a lot that people in the audience and people that people can offer me. Um, as far as that question, I can only offer my anecdotal experience. And um, the pandemic, crystallize a lot of things for me self-care wise. Um, I didn't understand how ragged I was running myself. I didn't understand how tired I was. I didn't understand how I was destroying myself. And I didn't, I didn't see a possibility of sitting down, not into the pandemic, 
before the pandemic, I had never spent more than two months in one city in my whole adult life. And so during the pandemic, the first month of lockdown, a lot of things, I was like, wait a second. There are benefits to being in one place. I didn't know that. I could get on a schedule. I could, I could control my diet. I could have a routine. These are all healthy things that I didn't realize I was missing out on. Um, and I was on a treadmill. I was doing 200 shows a year, and I was good at it, right? So I could do, be do, performing, get by at a club and thinking about breakfast the next morning. Oh, I want the waffles at the hotel, you know? And I'm still, I'm performing, and the audience is clapping and cheering, and they're giving me a standing ovation, but I'm not physically present. And I didn't understand that I was doing that until I had to get back on stage after the pandemic because my big hit records, Hot Thing, The Blast, Get By, I wasn't able to access them. I couldn't remember the words. And I'm like, well, I perform these songs almost every night for 20 years straight. How do I not know these words? And it's because for the last few years, I just wasn't present. I was just on autopilot. And that's not good for an artist because it's like I I'm not... I'm not being honest in what I'm doing. I mean, that means that I was just out there for the check. I wasn't out there to really express myself as an artist. So what changes have you made since you realized this? Well, I take far less shows, and I charge way more money. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But it's, you know, it's a brave choice because it's like I've, I've been learning. It took me to, I'm, I'm 47 years old. It took me to this age to understand that you have to set your value and your value has to be based on what you're worth, not based on what's in somebody else's pocket. Preach. I mean, I could go down this road and, and say, was it the consumerism that was driving you? Because I feel like in America, we're taught to consume, 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 produce, 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 produce. Um, it's all about consumption. Yeah, I mean, well, I want to be careful because we have to acknowledge our privileges. And you have born privileges and you have earned privileges. And I'm born in America. I'm born a man. I'm born a straight man. I have all my limbs and I'm fairly healthy. And these are all privileges that I'm born with. Um, but I've earned celebrity privilege. I've earned a privilege to be able to determine my own schedule. As an artist, I don't have the same parameters. I don't have the same challenges and restrictions that people have. And most people have to get up and go to a job that they may or may not like, and they don't, they don't have a choice in the matter of, well, I'm gonna just take some time off for self-care. And so I, I, I'm critical of rise and grind culture because I'm someone who has spent a lot of years patting myself on the back for how tired I was and how hard I worked. And I, I outgrind everybody and I get up before everybody and I go to sleep after everybody. And, and to be fair, there's, there's been, it's a gift and a curse. I've been rewarded for that, and it's been uh, harmful as well. Um, but as I get older, my focus has shifted to more like, well, is that, do I, want, do I want to win, 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 win? Is all I do is win? Because if all I do is win, every, somebody got to lose. You know, is this really a competition? Um, do, I really, do, do I really need to pride myself on how much I grind, or should I be pride of myself on how much I spend time with my family? Um, and so we're taught to be proud of being the labor force. We're taught to be proud of making the wheels turn at very little profit to ourselves. And I feel like that's a, 
uh, uh, as Yassin Bey would say, a, a capitalist hangover, a colonial hangover is how he would frame it. Um, I just went to Zanzibar. I had a show in South Africa, and I'd never been to Zanzibar. And every time I go to, I get booked, because I don't know if y'all know, but if you do underground hip hop for a living, white people in cold places really love your music. I don't know if it's a voyeuristic thing, you know what I'm saying? But I get booked in cold, mountainous places where white people live often. I don't ever get booked where the sun is. I don't get booked in Africa. I don't get booked in the Carib Caribbean. The, like, like people I don't in know the... what you're saying about Cleveland, though, with this. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't do that well in Cleveland. I don't, I don't get booked a lot in Cleveland. Last show I had at Cleveland, I remember I used to do the grog shop, but do you still got that here? I don't, I don't, I don't do that well in Cleveland. I do well in um, in, in L.A., Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle. I do very well. Portland, Oregon, yeah, they love me. Um, but places where it's black people in the sun, it's like they're not listening to like underground hip hop in them places. They're like they're turning up a little bit more. Well, we're gonna have to figure that out another day. But I took I needs. took my son with me to Africa. And I, my son has traveled, my children travel with me often, but my son said something to me, like we, was, we were in Africa for one show, but we were there for two weeks. When I got home, we, we took a flight back, and I said, yo, thank you so much for coming with me. I feel like we got, spent some important time. And he said, yeah, he said, this is the first time I went on a trip with you where you weren't working every day. And I didn't realize that. Until he said it. In my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a great father. I take my kids with me all the time. They're always traveling with me. But in his mind, from his perspective, he's like, yeah, we travel with you, but you're always working. This is like one of the first trips where we, where we, we woke up in the morning and we just did what we felt like. And so I'm, I'm trying to tailor my life so I can have more of those moments. That's beautiful, and I'm pretty sure he appreciates it. So you've acknowledged your privilege, your born privilege, the privilege you've earned um, in the music industry, in the social media streets, tweets. In these streets? In these tweets, streets. <laughs> um, but you also state, without us realizing it and without us acknowledging our privilege, we become tribal, we become violent, we become protectionist. And essentially, you say we become jerks. Like, you literally say that in the book. Um, that we become our base selves operating at our lowest vibration. Can you share with us a moment, a moment when you were operating at your lowest vibration and a time when you were, you were vibrating at your highest? Right now is a challenge for me. Um, if you've been paying attention to any of the news surrounding Kanye West, it's challenging for me because this is someone who I consider my friend. This is someone I, who I consider my brother. And uh, I've tried in my own way, publicly and privately, uh, to have some, some uh, to sort of criticize him. He went on Drink Champs last year and he said, Quali always trying to get me to read. He should just read himself to death. And then, and then he expressed how he doesn't like to read. And you know, it's, it's easy to make fun of him for saying he don't like to read. Um, but, He's being, in that regard, he's being honest. I think most of us don't like to read. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. Um, what the challenge is, is that I have a dog in this fight. Because this is my friend, my brother. He also publicly went after me for challenging him privately. And when he did that, 
I feel like there are people in our community, I just made a post about this before I got on the stage, but I feel like there are people in, in, our, in the hip hop community, in the black community, and, and people around me, who when he first put on the MAGA hat in 2016, were treating me like I was tripping to say something about it. You know, and, and when he started saying anti-black stuff and putting on a hat makes me feel like Superman and all this, all this stuff he was saying, we're still buying his music and we're still buying his shoes and we're still supporting him. And so it's hard for me to comment, it's hard for me to comment on it without feeling like I'm being petty and, and being biased and just in my feelings because of the things that he said about me. But at the same time, it's hard for me to not comment on it because he says on last call that I'm part of the reason why he has a career. You know, part of the reason why people gave Kanye West a look is not just because of how dope and how talented he is, he's incredible, but also because he came through Blackstar and Common and Dead Prez and we all vouched for him. And where I'm from, vouch still means something. You know, so if I vouched for this man 20 years ago and now he's straight up saying anti-black Nazi rhetoric, I feel obligated to, to say something about it. But I do some, I've, I've hesitated. I've hesitated to speak on it because I feel like, am I, just, am I just in my feelings? Am I just taking, am I just, am I also cloud chasing? Am I also using his downfall to make myself look better? Um, and so it's, these are things that are in my mind and, and I've, I've had to navigate uh, the, and be cautious in how I respond to this. So as activists, because I think you and I, we see each other as activists. We call people out. That's what we do. You, I see you online all the time. <laughs> if, 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 if they deserve it. If, yeah, they if deserve appropriate, it. yeah. This is your friend. Mm -hmm. You call them out in private. At one moment, even, let's put Kanye to the side for one second. If someone goes left, not on the political spectrum, we call them out. At what point do we call each other in? Because we're in a fight against white supremacy. Right, well I think it's about, uh, so intention is, you know, when it comes to oppression, uh, intention doesn't matter, results do. So it doesn't matter what Kanye West's intentions are. His results is, is he's enabling white supremacist, uh, supremacist rhetoric and, and behavior. Um, but when we're dealing with friends and family and people that we claim to love, we can't just throw intention out the window. We have to acknowledge that your results are still creating harm, but I think the intention for me with somebody like Kanye is to always call him in. Candace Owens is not my friend. I'm calling her out. She's never been a friend of the community. Kanye West has been a friend of the community. So I'm calling, and he's my personal friend. And I, I, don't, I don't ask anybody to forgive him. I understand if someone's like, I can't rock with Kanye. I don't forgive him. I just, but what can I say to that? Um, so for me, I'm always calling him out. And I want, I want to state this too because Kanye's playing with fire. He's, the things he's saying is very dangerous. And the reason why it's so dangerous is because of the cultural currency he has in our community and because he's mixing the lies and the bigotry in with some truths, which is dastardly to do. He, I don't think he understands how dastardly he's being, but it's dastardly. And so I, I want to say this as we're talking about it. Um, when Donald Trump was running for the president the first time, he made a statement. He said, black people are so poor 
and black people have high rates of poverty, particularly in cities that are run by Democrats. That's a true statement. The next thing he said after that was, this is why you should vote for me for president. That's a false statement. Someone using the truth to get you to agree with their interpretation is that's some devil stuff to do. And Kanye's behaving like a devil. And I don't think we can mince words with here because I'm someone, when we're talking about anti-Semitism, the things that Kanye West is saying are resonating with some people in our community. Because from my own experience, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, there's a lot of Jewish interlopers in my community, uh, particularly Hasidic community. And, uh, landlords, people being unfair. And if you just, if, you're not, if you've never read a book, and again, we go back to reading, Right? If you're someone who's not a well-read person and you just look around in Brooklyn, you might look around and be like, man, these Jews run everything. That might be the take that you come away with. Um, but just because there are racist Jewish people who take advantage of black people doesn't mean that's a license to go DEFCON on Jews. And once you take that rhetoric out of the, once you take it out of context and you start talking about I'm going DEFCON on Jews, you're, this just Nazi rhetoric. Uh, bigotry is not a function of Judaism. Bigotry is a function of white supremacist ideology. And so you have racist Jewish people because Jewish people come in all colors, including white. And so when you're talking about Jewish people running Hollywood or Jewish people running the banks or Jewish people running, you're talking about racist white people. They're not doing that because they're Jewish. They're doing that because they're racist white people. And when you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you say that stuff, you're also erasing black Jewish people or Jewish people of all races and colors. You're erasing them. Um, now, in case that's still not enough, if you say that stuff, which has some, which you're playing with the truth, you're throwing a little nugget of truth in there, but you're also saying it wearing a White Lives Matter t-shirt and you're standing next to Candace Owens and you got on the MAGA hat and you're buying parlor from Candace Owens' husband, which is a, a right-wing Twitter for racist people who, you know, when you're doing all that and you're saying DEFCON on the Jews, there's no room. I don't want to, nobody, nobody should be saying, well, you know, he lied about George Floyd, but everything else was true. No, you're, you're no, enabling Nazi rhetoric right. you say that. Right. You know, and I think that's very important to state because a lot of people are getting caught up that that divide and conquer is very real. These Jewish people that Kanye West is talking about, our enemy is also going after these people. And I'm saying this as someone who is pro-Palestine. I'm saying this as someone who is, who is against the apartheid system of the Israeli government. I'm saying this as someone who is, has shows canceled. I've had death threats. I've, had, I've been attacked by Zionists for standing up for Palestine. So I understand the criticism. There, 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 are, val there are valid criticisms to be made about anti-blackness in the Jewish community and what's going on in Israel. And so what's you, as you think about this in the context of Kanye, but in the context of community, right? So we're talking about community healing among ourselves in this community in Cleveland, um, in, in neighborhoods that have been disinvested, in neighborhoods that are, are struggling, but are on the come up because organizations like St. Luke's Foundations and other leaders in our community. When you disagree with someone, who's your friend, and you see him as a part of the, a part of the movement. At some point he was, right? He was a voice. He was a platform he and a voice. He was a platform and a voice. He was a voice and yeah. a platform. 
you all have platforms. You as a rapper have a platform. Kanye has a platform. At what point does that platform become a weapon against our own community? Is that what's happening with Kanye? Yeah, I think what we're seeing with Kanye is indoctrination. He's not thinking, the whole free thinkers, it's not a coincidence that everyone who claims to be a free thinker just ends up agreeing with racists, you know? Um, he's not thinking for himself. He's, he's literally regurgitating talking points from Candace Owens that she got from Turning Point USA, which is the, the, the white supremacist organization that she used to work for, that she actually lost her job because she said that Hitler would have been okay if he didn't try to expand past Germany. Which is which is not apologizing for Nazis, um, Kanye West. And, and so for him, I'm not willing to have the conversation with him because he's not he's not he's being indoctrinated. It's like the Manchurian Candidate at this mm -hmm. point. You know, I can dis this. I'm not I'm not I don't I don't like. I think Kanye West has proven in real time that conservative values are a direct pipeline to Nazi ideology. Yeah. You are telling the truth, um, especially when it comes to this part about Kanye and just him just falling in. I don't want to end this particular conversation on Kanye. I oh, want to yeah. talk about where you get your inspiration from, in particular from black women, um, because I've heard you talk about it. And I'm actually going to borrow a question from Ohio's own Bakari Kitwana, who is in, in the audience tonight. Um, can you share which black women writers have influenced you and how they have influenced you? Well, one of the most direct influences on me as a writer is Toni Morrison, as evidenced by um, the, thong, the song uh, Thieves in the Night off the first Black Star album. So for Thieves in the Night, the hook of Thieves in the Night, not strong, only aggressive, not free, we only license, not compassionate, only polite, not who the nicest, not good, but well-behaved, chasing after death so we could call ourselves brave, still living like mental slaves, hiding like thieves in the night from life. Uh, that's an interpolation of the last paragraph of Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye. So it's, it's like a direct, direct inspiration. Um, but, you know, I'm also very much influenced by uh, Maya Angelou, uh, Octavia Butler, uh, Edwidge Danicat, who put out her first book, Breath Eyes Memory, when I was working at the bookstore. Um, and uh, who else? Uh, Angela Davis is a writer, someone who I'm very uh, inspired by. Um, those are the ones off the top of my head. Thank you. I think we're waiting on someone to turn us over to the Q&A part of this. But before Cynthia gets up here, I want to ask you one more question. Sure. You are very much in admiration of um, our contemporary social justice mover, movement leaders, whether it's Aja Monet, or, um, but then also you've spent time with Harry Belafonte. Yes, Mr. B. What are some lessons that you've learned from them that we can use in our community to move our community forward? So, man, Harry Belafonte is such an important person. Uh, I don't think he gives his flowers enough. Um, years ago, I worked on an album called Prisoner of Conscience. And it struck me that I'm about to sell an album called Prisoner Conscious, and they're actual prisoner conscious uh, people who are still locked up for fighting for our freedoms. And I started to feel conflicted about that. I'm like, how am I to make money on this idea if I'm not really tapped in? And I'm, you know, on the surface, it looks like I'm tapped in because I, I was giving my voice and my platform to activist uh, causes. I'm always showing up at events and stuff like that. But I felt like there was more work I could do. And um, the first thing I did, I went to visit Mumia. 
Um, that was like a life-changing situation. But uh, Harry Belafonte, the same week that I visited Mumia, he was, he, it was around, this was around, this was, a, this was Trayvon Martin, was that 2012? Trayvon Martin had just been murdered. And he called a meeting uh, at his house. No, it wasn't his house, it was Kenneth Cole's house. Um, and it was Chuck D, Rosario Dawson, Knife Wonder, David Banner, Jasiri X, um, myself, Yasin Bey called in, Jamie Foxx called in. But essentially he was saying, look, I'm 80 something years old and I can't keep being the leader of this. And I, 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 I wanna look for ways that we can, that the younger people and the hip hop people could step up. And it, it was, you know, by 2012, I, I didn't have a hit record. Nobody in the room had a hit record on the radio. Uh, that he had at that meeting, but we still represented hip hop. And so I remember sitting, li literally sitting at his feet and I'm like, what should I, what can I do? And he's like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm 80 something years old. You need to follow the, the young people, the youth. Um, and he said, there's a guy named Phil Agnew who has an organization called the Dream Defenders in Tallahassee, Florida. You should check them out. Uh, they, are, they are occupying the state capitol to try to strike down the stand, stand your ground laws. I went to look up Phil Agnew. His speeches were impactful and powerful. And I flew down there to Tallahassee and I went and slept in that Capitol building and, 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 and developed lifelong friendships. One of the best organizations for, for liberation that I've ever come across is the Dream Defenders. And it's funny you mentioned Aja Monet. Her and Phil, they, uh, Dream Defenders did a trip to Palestine where they brought Aja Monet. Aja Monet and Phil fell in love they did a whole TED, TED talk about how they're in love. They're not together anymore, but they're still revolutionary love. You know, but, um, but they, they speak highly of each other in public. Okay. Um, but you know, it, it took Harry Belafonte to plug me in with Dream Defenders. And then when it was D Dream Defenders, uh, I met people from Black Lives Matter down there. And then a year later, when Mike Brown was murdered, I went to Ferguson. And who did I see in Ferguson? Phil Agnew and Dream Defenders and and Bree Newsom, the, the the young lady who climbed the 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 to, took the Confederate flag down. Like these, all these people were in this stew together, and it was Harry Belafonte to put me in there with those young people. Thank you. Now we're going to turn you over to the audience. Yes. <laughs> yes. We are about to begin the audience Q and A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming at the City Club of Cleveland. We are listening to a conversation on how music is, can be used to build community strength here at Morningstar Baptist Church on Cleveland's east side. With us is Talib Kwali, hip-hop artist and author of his new memoir, Vibrate Higher, a rap story. Moderating the conversation this evening is Chanel Smith-Wiggum, a Glenville resident and Senior Vice President and Director of Community Relations and Corporate Initiatives at KeyBank. We welcome questions from everyone in our audience, City Club members, community members, students, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org or on the live radio broadcast at 95.9 WOVU. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question, please? Mic check, one, two, one, two. Okay, Peace. you hear me? What's going on, King? How you feeling? So first of all, my name is Malcolm Burton. I'm the founder of My Brother, My Sister Global. It is a youth service organization specializing in hip-hop therapy, cultural stability, art therapy, as well as providing access to STEM. But I really want to give you your flowers, King. Hold on. 
Hello, can you still hear me? Yes, indeed. I want to give you your flowers because as a young person, I was in high school when I listened to Reflection Eternal's Train of Thought album, which I believe had a 22-year anniversary yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. That album, there was a song on it called Love Language. Love Language, the value system that we use with our youth is community, love, and culture. So the song Love Language, we use this song as a mantra to create the concepts to start dealing with the layers of love, the understanding of love. When we talk about the layers of love, not just love from one person intimately to another, but self-love, love for thy neighbor, love for your brother, love for your sister, love for the community, love for humanity. So I want to give you your flowers first and foremost because that song will go into concepts about now we got to deal with love language. And it's directly from that album. So that's one. But my question Thank is you. this. I know I'm, I started first, so I had to do it like so this. My question is this. When I was 14, I listened to that same album, the song Memories Live. You said, by the time you hear this, I'll be basking in African sun. I used to listen to that in high school. And coming from Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, I could escape as that goes into Africa Dream, that track. I could see Africa. I could visualize it just from the song, proving again the power in music, the power that some people might take from films or books, but things that allow us to escape our current reality, a bridge. You went high tech, that album, that's that Ohio, New York City connection, that Brooklyn, Cincinnati collection. My question is, how did you guys create that union and how was that? Much respect, Ken. Well, thank you, thank you for your, uh, uh, thank you for expressing yourself and thank you for the, for the warm words, I appreciate it. Um, and definitely shout out to high tech in Ohio. Um, and I, I appreciate you bringing up art therapy because I had never even heard that term until a, a week ago and I did an event and they brought that up and I'm like, that makes sense. Um, Africa Dream is interesting. If you look on the Reflection Eternal album, that's the one song that says it's produced by me. Um, and it's, it's not because I made the track. Hatech made this basic drum, bass, guitar loop um, that I was like, I want to use that. He was like, I don't even like that beat. I'm like, no, I need to use that. The vision for the song was I wanted to take all the music, the whole canon of black music, African music, and put it in one song. So the song starts out with drumming. Uh, my man Delwyn is uh, a drummer I knew in junior high school. I invited him. It comes, starts with the African drumming, and then it goes into, like, it feels jazzy. And then Weldon Irvine, rest in peace, he's playing on it. Um, and it's, it goes from, like, like, African drumming to more bluesy to jazz. Then the drums come in and it feels like more like funk R&B. And then by the end, you got the, the scratching and the cutting. And so that was the vision for the song. And um, and I called it Africa Dream because it was like, I felt like that's it, it was from Africa to now. I was trying to connect the hip hop world to Africa. And um, that's why I said at the end, by the time you hear this, I'll be basking in African sun. And I was about a year after I made that song. It took me about a year to make that happen. But, um, but yeah, thank you. Good evening. Um, Peace. Thank you for being here. Thank you, fam. I love your music. Thank you, thank I've you. I told my wife, you've listened to him, you just don't even know what you've been every time you... <laughs> thank you. Um, Two-part question. Your book, Vibrating at a Higher Level, Vibrate Higher, can you expound on that? and how sound vibration affects the human body and emotion and health. And two, do you intentionally or have you intentionally made music at a certain frequency to get that effect? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, so Vibrate Higher is not 
for me a directive. It's more of a a mantra for myself, an instruction for myself. Uh, because I'm not perfect, I'm flawed in many ways. And so me naming the book that was a, were a reminder to self. In the first chapter, I talk about how my friend Wisdom Salah gave me a book um, that talked about excuse me, an experiment where they played music and tested the effect it had on water and the patterns that 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 the vibration from the music created and 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 everything and and then that that made me think of being on tour with De La Soul. De La Soul has a song called Stakes Is High and it samples uh James Brown and when I'm on tour with De La the way they go into Stakes Is High uh they have a chant that they do and they say when we say vibe we want y'all to say vibration stakes is high you know the stakes is high when we say vibe we want y'all to say vibration and doing that song every night on stage we i was on tour with, with high tech common pharaoh march de la soul recipes biz Marquis. and every night on tour when they did stakes is high because that was a big record that year we'd all come out on stage and the collective energy in the room which is raise up so high that I saw, I, tangibly, I saw the vibe raising just from music and chanting. And, and so I always strive to get to that moment in my music. And I've, I've failed at that mission there's, at, at, at certain times in my career. There's been times in my career where I've made music just for a check, where someone, I, someone wanted to do a feature. I wasn't really feeling the song, but the money was good enough, so I just did the song. Um, when I would just go in the studio and, and be like, okay, I need to make a club banger, or I need to make a song for the ladies, or I need to make, and that's not, the, that's not an organic, conducive way to make music. That's not the right way, the right attention to making music. And I've, I found that the, old, the more I pay attention to making sure that I can keep my vibration, like even making sure that the right people in the studio, using the same engineer all the time, having the same lights and scents in the studio when I'm, I'm there, um, all of this stuff has become very, very important. And at this point, and back to what I was saying about making sure that I'm always present. If I'm not present, I don't, I don't make music. And and at this point, the music for me is only, only to vibrate higher. We're, we're in a church now. Um, that stage is my church. That studio is my church. And so I, I, I owe it to myself to continue to, to try to do that. Thank you. Good evening and congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, I have a question. I do believe that music is a healer. I've always believed in that. And coming from a community that is so broken and listening to the rap music and the hip hop music that I see these young people listening to, even the older people, some of the language that is used in this music is so disrespectful. I see the, even the younger babies uh, mimicking these words to these disrespectful songs but they cannot read. They are failing in schools. But if they, you see them out there every day, and I'm in the community every day, I'm a community leader and advocate. So to watch these babies, they cannot read, they cannot do their math, but can recite every rap song that's out there that is disrespectful, disrespectful, especially to women, and they think nothing of it. So my question to you is how can we turn that into something more positive to for our younger people and for our babies who are failing so much in communities that, because it's a subsidized community, and of course it's stigmatized forever. So to build these babies up in a more positive way, 
what advice do you give, could you give me as a community leader so that we can move these children, our babies, in a more positive direction as far as music is concerned? Thank you. Um, so the, to, for the first, first part of my answer, I'll go back to what I was saying about, I do think it's imperative for us to highlight positive hip hop, and there's a lot of it out there. Um, and so there's almost too much of it. Um, and so I would encourage people who are not happy with what's being sold to them to become more conscious uh, consumers and create your own playlist and be, be intentional about what you're taking in. Um, and to lead by example, you put a lie next to the truth, the truth is always gonna outshine the lie. The lie don't even stand a chance. But if, if all they have is the lie, if that's the only thing they have, they're gonna gravitate to, to that. Um, I think it starts at the root. When you hear young people being vulgar and disrespect, disrespectful in the music and using something as beautiful as talent and, 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 and creative energy to, to be mean and aggressive and disrespectful and violent and misogynistic, um, there's a silver lining in that because they're trying to let you know that they're hurt. And they're trying to let you know that there's a problem here. There's, you know, David Banner, when he went to speak to Congress, he said, if you want, if you want to see people rap about roses, come plant a rose garden in the hood. Um, I think that if we, um, if we focus on the root and not the symptom, the root cause is poverty. The root cause is, is white supremacy. The root cause is not children singing bad rap lyrics. So if we look at things like uh, as simple as uh, Gracie's Corner, y'all know what Gracie's Corner is? Uh, some parents here. Like, it's a great alternative to Coco Melon. Um, it is, you know what I'm saying? But, but just starting at the root, right? Understanding that, okay, there's certain sounds and styles that the children are gravitating towards. Well, as parents, let's be responsible and let's create content that is that that creates a balance for our children in our household. So with the kids who are watching Gracie's Corner, and for people who don't know it, it's like trap rap beats, but like with positive messaging and say your ABCs and stuff like that. Um, these kids are gonna come, these kids have that example in the household. Um, as a New York City kid, I can't stress the importance of, of what Sesame Street did. Not Sesame Place. I gotta, gotta clarify here, because it's two different organizations. Sesame Street didn't like what Sesame Place did recently. But Sesame Street, there's a great documentary on HBO Max called, I think, Our Gang, right now, and it's about the history of Sesame Street. And Sesame Street was started by educators and community people for all different races and backgrounds who had the same question that the sister had. And if, how many people watch Mad Men? Nobody, right? It's a really white show. <laughs> Grey's Anatomy, don't judge me. <laughs> I love Mad Men, because Mad Men, it broke down how the advertising ages, advertising essentially started to sell us liquor and cigarettes. And TV was invented, like, you know, the, the, and, and, and laundry detergent, you know, you know, a cigarette company sponsored 60 Minutes, and Mike Wallace would do interviews with Salvador Dali. But before I do this interview with Salvador Dali, let me tell you about the smoothness of Parliament cigarettes. You know, that type of thing. And the, 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 the Tide Variety Hour. You know, these TV, TV programs, TV shows were invented to sell us stuff. 
And advertising is a very subversive thing. It's a very, very deliberate thing. So what Sesame Street people did was they took the lessons from Madison Avenue advertising techniques, techniques, and they applied them to education and applied them to, you know, kids. They were noticing the disparities of kids in the hood weren't reading, weren't weren't passing the test right, and they had real real results to the point where, you know, there were like bigoted communities down south trying to ban Sesame Street, like PBS down south in certain neighborhoods, they just, they, kids didn't have access to it because it was teaching uh, communities of color. It was doing too well in communities of color. So I, I think that's a good example of, of taking what we have, taking the resources we have and, and using them to, and applying them to our, to our children, not being dismissive of the TV. Okay, they watch the TV, well how can we use that for positivity? Okay, they like these type of beats, well how can we put positive stuff over these type of beats? Peace, peace, peace. Uh, peace. Ooh, ooh. Appreciate you, you kind of you answered my question while I was sitting here standing here, so now I'm going in my head trying to figure out another question. Oh, it's all good, man. And I'm a touch nervous, so. It's all uh, good. I'm gonna come you don't need to something. be nervous, we all, we all family. No, no, really, it was kind of, it was kind of a piggyback off of uh, what, um, <clears throat> what was said before, but I, I, my question is kind of, what would be your advice nowadays? And I know you came up in a different era, kind of the same era as my, myself, almost the same age. What would your advice be to these younger artists coming up now on 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 how to get started? I think a lot of these artists think that that getting a, a viral video will get them on. And I, I think that they all think that way. What, what would be your advice to tell these young artists? Because I work with a lot of artists and I do a lot of things out here with videos and that kind of stuff. What would you tell them so far as is, is trying to get on this day and age? What would be your advice to, to, to get to that next level? Um, I think the, the main advice I would give is to understand the difference between celebrity and art. Mm. And I think the people who look at celebrity as artist, um, and they're not always the same. There's a term that I really, I don't hate anything, but there's a term that I really dislike that gets tossed around. And that term is content creator. People pat themselves on the back. I'm a content creator. Well, what does that even mean? Every time I speak out my mouth, I'm creating content. Don't get me started on this. You know what I'm saying? If, yeah, I, yeah. if I fart on an airplane, I created content. <laughs> but is that as valuable as a Jacob Lawrence painting? How can you compare? Just like the, it's, it's it's a real lazy term to me. Like the idea that I'm supposed to respect you and value you because you created content. What does that even mean? I mean, are we? Are we it eliminates all morals. It eliminates all accountability. It eliminates anything that any. It, the idea that I'm supposed to just respect you because you got views, because you created content. How I don't understand how that's artistic. So for 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 younger artists, I would. Encourage them to not focus on the fame and not focus on the celebrity and not focus on being content creators, but to really study art, especially for communities of color. Art is a major, major resource for us. Um, when you look at civilizations of the past, whether it's Roman civilization or whether it's the Confederacy, the, the dollars of that, of those, the, the, the currency that they use is not worth anything, but the art is completely worth a lot. When you look at movies about dystopian futures, you know, people are people are are, are still collecting art. You know, there's when you look at Children of Men or The Matrix, there's art all through that. When you look at what the Nazis did, the first thing they did is went and steal the art because they understood that the art will always appreciate. And so I think focusing on studying art and studying artists as opposed to studying Moments yeah. um, is important. 
Hey, King. It's a pleasure to be here with you, brother. Pleasure to be here with you. I saw you in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was so disappointed when I got there because I wanted to hear you speak with you DJ. When was this? This was probably about 2018, 19. Okay. Yeah, you DJ. And I was like, oh, man. Because I was bragging to all Was my set whack? Huh? Was the set just oh, no, terrible? No, no, no. It was, it, listen, <laughs> I was disappointed at first, but I, I walked up out of there feeling, feeling real okay, good. Okay, okay, okay. Because you got out. Okay. But I really wanted to hear you talk. Okay. And I had bragged to all my friends because my friends, they really wasn't hip to you. So I said, man, come on, we got it. Right. And then I played a bunch of other rappers' records. But I, want, I just want to say, do you do more DJ shows? Is that part of what you do now? Or? Um, so DJing, as I, I really enjoy it. Thank you for your question. I really, really enjoy it. Um, rapping is hard. It's very hard. I get to get up there and give my all, blood, sweat, and tears, sweating through my clothes, through my, through my jeans, through my underwear, all that, to give a show and deliver message and everything. And it's like, you mean to tell me I could just play someone else's record? And get the same effect from the audience? And the same check? And without sweating? The check ain't quite the same yet, but but I, I do love DJing. I do it a lot. I do a party in Austin, Texas once a month called Last Tuesdays. But my main gig is being an MC. My main gig is being a rapper. And that, that's that's what brought me to this place. And I'm a celebrity DJ. So I get I get I have DJ privilege. So I gotta respect all the working class DJs who like who really have to work and get drinks spilled on their computers and have to deal with requests. I don't really have to deal with any of that because I get treated differently because of my stature as a rapper. But I'm, I'm a humble student when it comes to, I don't even like to say I'm a DJ, I'm more a selector. When it comes to my music taste and my musical knowledge, I can compete with the best of the best when it comes to DJs. But when it comes to tech, technical skill, not at all. Like I'm, I get away with the blends because I know the jams. You know what I'm saying? I know which jams work. So. If you know the jams, that makes up a lot of a lot of it. But um, I gotta give respect to all the DJs who know the jams and also got the the technical stuff down. Do we have any more questions from the audience? Oh, they took away the mic, but y'all know me. <laughs> you can still ask. Make it, it fast. Make it fast. Yeah. How you feeling? You know, I think that hip, like I said earlier, hip hop is regional, and so, in my experience, any hip hop artist that blows up does it because he has his whole city behind him, and, um, you know, Cleveland got Cleveland has given us some some great hip hop artists from 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 Cuddy is Cuddy from here, yeah, and uh and Chip, and uh Bone Thugs and. You know, but the city, the city had to get behind them. So if you're an up and coming rapper, you gotta get, you have to galvanize your city to the point where when I come to your city, I don't leave without several people telling me that I need to be checking for you. Like if you in this city, 
I need when I leave, people need to be like, yo, have you heard such and such? And the movement has to start here because if you have your city, you don't need nobody else, I think. Um, and and then when you do when you do get to the mainstream level, that's what gets you there is that you already have that those people behind you. I think that uh, it's, it's, it's just like just like politics, it's, it's, you got to go local. You got to focus on local. Don't focus on the presidential elections. Focus on local elections. When it comes to hip hop, don't focus on billboard. Focus on your your city. And there's election now. Early voting has started. You can vote between now and November 8th. This was absolutely awesome. Let's give them another round of applause. Absolutely awesome. So Chanel, we truly thank you. That was awesome moderating. We truly appreciate uh, the questions, the deep questions. And Talib, we truly thank you. I'm going to call this authentic humanity that you shared with us. Thank you for sharing your authentic humanity with us. We know that this, this conversation is going to be the buzz for the next few weeks, but not just in Cleveland. It's going to be the buzz all over the country, and it's because of you sharing your authentic humanity, and we truly appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you, and I would like to just thank y'all for being so gracious and so beautiful and so powerful, for so excellent, and for inviting me into your community, and I, I appreciate y'all. With that, with, I want to take a small pause, because when we first started planning this, everything that we do, we do with engaging the community. But before we engaged the community, before we brought in our resident advancement committee, it was Peter Witt that said we should invite to live quietly. So just want you to know that and want to thank you, Peter, for that and acknowledge you. No, that, thank you, Peter. Acknowledge you for that. <laughs> Pastor Hall, we certainly want to thank you for opening your doors of the church. We truly appreciate you for all that you're doing in the community. And with that, I want to let you guys know that our next partnership with the City Club is going to be on December 15th. We're going to bring in my friend, an individual who's from the city of Cleveland and now runs a national philanthropic organization. Marcus Walton is the president and CEO of Grant Makers for Effective Organizations. He's going to discuss how philanthropic organizations can move past transactional nature of diversity, equity, and inclusion. The tickets will be available soon. We want to make sure you guys stop by Third Space uh, Action Lab um, uh, booth and buy some books for them. With that, that uh, brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you again to Liv and Chanel. Thank you, audience. Thank you, uh, the board, for allowing us to move this way, for allowing us to do the, to implement your strategy this way. We truly appreciate that. And thanks to all of the members of the City Club, friends and uh, of the City Club and to, uh, of the St. Luke's Foundation. This forum is now adjourned. <laughs>